Let's pray. God, we are thankful for our time together this morning. Lord, I pray that you would guide us. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, direct us to great and glorious truths this morning, that we would be faithful. Lord, I pray that you would help us listen, uh, that you would help me speak. Lord, I pray that you would guard my mouth and my mind and uh, even the notes already prepared from anything that might depart from your best for us this morning. Lord, I pray that you'll use what we consider in these next few minutes to equip the saints for worship. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for um, Commerce Community Church and uh, for uh, David and Whitney Ferguson, Lord. I'm thankful for his friendship, thankful for their, their new life that they are experiencing at home with a newborn, Lord. I just entrust them to you as a family, as a couple, uh, as David as a worshiper and a, a shepherd of a family, Lord. I, I pray that they are enjoying you as they go through the week, Lord, that you are growing him in faith. Worship is fueling him, first of all, at home. And Lord, secondly, in the ministry of the church uh, and commerce, Lord, uh, we uh, entrust them to you. We're thankful for shared ministry, a shared heart. Uh, Lord, we uh, ask that you would do great and wonderful things in and through their church, Lord. Um, also, this morning, Lord, I want to pray for those who are grieving the loss of a loved one. Um, pray for those who are preparing for the loss of a loved one. Lord, we just pray that you would minister to those families. Uh, so many folks come to mind right now in both situations. Lord, we pray that you would minister to them in a way that, that would bring you glory, a way that would encourage them and hope and peace that can only come from you. Lord, lastly, we want to pray for those who are sick in our, in our uh, church family, Lord, those who are going through various treatments and just entrusting them to you, Lord. Thankful that you are a good father. We love you and trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have, uh, I want to admit to you that I have some anxiety a little bit about this morning. And um, I, I can laugh about it during the week. In fact, I, I can't this morning, though. I'm not, not laughing right now. I was sharing with Key Walker earlier this week what the sermon was about. We were riding in the car going to pick up some dinner. And I was telling him what the sermon was about. And, and um, it's about Jesus. I mean, like, really, just literally about Jesus. That, like, what that conversation might might go like at L three in the cubicle. Like, guy turns to turns to Key or to, to one of you and says, "Hey, well, what was your, you know, you go to church, right? Yeah, I go to church. What was your sermon about? Uh, it was about Jesus." And you're like, "Okay, well, I mean, really, what was it about? I mean, I know it was probably was about Jesus, but what else was it about? I mean, what are you supposed to do?" And he's like, um, "Worship." <laughs> and how? We kind of laughed about that in the car, and I was thinking, yeah, that's kind of a fictitious, imaginary conversation. Well, that conversation actually took place in my driveway a couple days later. It was a day later. Daniel and I, I think I picked him up from school or something. We were, we were coming from somewhere, and he's driving now, like under tutorial, you know. And we survived another training ride, and we were pulling into the driveway. And I'm just looking straight ahead, and I'm, you know, breathing deeper. No, it's not that bad. He's doing a good job. And he, uh, he pulls into the driveway, and as he's driving down the driveway, it's not a real long driveway. It's a very short conversation. He says, so what's the sermon about Sunday, Dad? And I was looking straight forward, and I said, Jesus. And I felt him turn his head. Like I could just see out of my periphery where he turned his head, and he looked at me. He's got a smile on his face. He's like, no, really, Dad. I know it's about Jesus. What else? I was like, that's it. 
It's just about Jesus. And it's something I can laugh about during the week. But some of my anxiety that comes about on Sunday mornings is um, I have to preach those messages where I can sometimes see the look on people's faces. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with these problems that I'm dealing with? And that's a very real and fair question. I think what probably drives folks to church, and in a lot of cases, is a problem, some crisis or some event, some deficiency, some need. They're like, well, maybe the church will have some answers. And then you show up to church, and we're talking about an ancient person, an ancient teacher. And we're reading from a book that has some ancient writings in it, and we may not scratch that itch that you brought in here at all, at least directly. And I can sometimes see the look on your faces like, ah, Man, I wish you'd talk about relationships this morning. Our money, our marriage, or all of the above. All the things that we bring in that are fair things, things that we experience. And some of my anxiety comes from I don't have an itch or I don't have a scratch for that this morning. But I have hopefully what might help you in a deeper and more life-altering way is for us to spend a few minutes sort of forgetting about ourselves. Like really just kind of almost intentionally parking all those problems. And saying, let's just enjoy this, this person that we're going to spend eternity worshiping. So that's what I want to do this morning. I hope I can guide us in that. It's not easy. It's not easy work to climb into an ancient story, to enjoy an ancient message, and to try and figure out how that connects to us. But I hope that the Holy Spirit will help us this morning. That's what I've been praying about. That's what I am hoping for right now as we spend these next few minutes. is for a Holy Spirit-guided listening where we can really hear beyond our problems and our itches and that we can really be ministered to in a way that might surprise us. Okay, that's my plan this morning. So uh, a couple things to start with is I want to start with a couple of passages that I planned to share with you last week. I, I, I presented you that, the idea kind of toward the end of the sermon about something that's got like, kind of like the ABCs, that the exodus and the exile and those things that I often refer to in a sermon that often are alluded to in New Testament passages, are even specifically spoken about, are oftentimes just things that we don't really know anything about. I mean, we, we know those words, but we really know where they fit. So I spent some time just last week uh, with a, a little timeline. The timelines are helpful for me to visualize things. I know it makes it feel a little bit academic, and I don't ever want this to feel academic, but I hope, I think good teaching is bolstered by, uh, good preaching is bolstered by good teaching. You have to know what your ABCs are to make some sentences and string some paragraphs together. So I want to spend just a moment with that this morning, going back to that slide, or at least a couple of those slides, uh, or one of those slides and then a new one that I developed last week. So go ahead and bring up that first uh, timeline slide. Okay. All right, hit the next. Okay, now, just leave it there for a moment, and I'm going to read a couple of passages. And I want to just kind of... um, flesh this timeline out. I didn't really rehearse this, so it might be kind of clunky, but since we're not a performance, we don't really care, right? Okay. A uh, passage I want to share with you first is from Jeremiah chapter 16. Now, let me go ahead and flesh out the next thing too, okay? Hold on. Don't, don't advance it. Go, go back just a tad. Okay, right after the Exodus. Now, it wasn't exactly on 1500 BC, and that's why there's a squiggly line. Okay, but after the Exodus, they wander in the wilderness for about 40 years. Okay, 
Hopefully a lot of us are familiar with that story. They wander in the wilderness, all over the wilderness, and then they cross, and, and that started with the crossing of the Red Sea. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they cross the Jordan into the Promised Land, and then they begin what's called the Conquest. The book of Joshua is a great book to read if you want to read about the Conquest. And then what happens after the Conquest is the period of the Judges that leads you right into this next thing. Go ahead and hit, yeah, the period of the Kings. Okay, not exactly beginning with King David because it began with King Saul, but King David is a good high water mark. Okay, and then go ahead and advance to the next thing. There's a splitting of the kingdom around 930 BC by uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam. Uh, it splits into the north with Israel and the south with Judah. Israel are all the other tribes, Judah's in the south. And then I've kind of fleshed out last week around 722 BC specifically, I didn't give the specific year last, or, uh, last time, uh, that the northern tribe went into exile into Assyria, okay? Around 586, 587, 588 B.C., the southern tribe, Judah, went into exile into Babylon. Look at little passages, okay? Can you give me a rag for when I get sweaty? I can hold it, you know, I get sweaty, I don't drop the microphone. Okay, cool. All right, we, we, can, we can handle this. I just won't be able to preach in my hands. Jeremiah 16. Okay. All right, here's a couple of passages. Uh, a couple of verses from Jeremiah 16, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. That's this thing right here, the Exodus. Okay, talking to ABCs. But as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of Israel, out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Okay, what he's talking about there, he's talking about this first exodus right here, around 1500 B.C., but he's talking about a second exodus also. And you could say, uh, second one, part A and part B, the second exodus being when the um, the tribe of, or the nation of Israel that's in exile in Assyria is brought back to the land. And when the, uh, the people of Judah are brought back to the land from Babylon, we're talking about a second exodus. Okay, you don't usually use that terminology, but I want you to begin to use that terminology of multiple exodus. And we'll just call it for this morning's sake, just because we can totally take the liberty of making up a word, exodi. Okay, we've got a first exodus out of Egypt, we got the second exodus, part A and B, from Assyria back home and from Babylon back home, okay? And that's what this passage is talking about here in Jeremiah chapter 16. Now, another passage to share just for introduction's sake is in Isaiah chapter 43, beginning in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Okay, he's talking Exodus language. He's talking ABCs. This is the language they use. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise because they're, they're, they're drowned. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. And here's the thing I want you to hear now at this point. This is, this is going to be sort of the plan for the whole morning. Behold, I am doing a new thing. I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth... Do you not perceive it? 
I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Uh, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. That's key phrase this morning. Rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Now, the reason I brought these two passages up this morning and the reason I have this thing on the board, although it feels on the wall, although it feels a little bit academic, because I want you to begin to see, is this thing ready? Okay, let's switch out because this thing gets on my nerve. We wired? Y'all hear me? Okay, all right. Now, the reason I went to this little effort this morning, I know it's like the least dramatic, least interesting introduction in the world, but it's four point. Okay, for ABCs, so we can have these visuals in front of us. Okay, the first passage I read from Jeremiah, Jeremiah was talking about this exodus, okay, this, this thing, that, that this first exodus, and he alluded to a second exodus where the exiles come back home to the promised land. Okay, I want to introduce you to the thought of multiple exoduses. Because that's going to make a space for you where Isaiah is talking about a new thing is going to happen. And the new thing is what we're talking about this morning where a new Moses called Jesus is going to lead his people out of Israel. That's a weird thought. Leading his people out of, and I should use air quotes, Israel. I'm talking metaphorically. Lead his remnant, his people, his faithful remnant out of this land that's become so corrupt, this people that's become so godless that Matthew refers to them as Egypt, but he's talking about Israel. Remember that passage from a couple Sundays ago? Out of Egypt I will call my son. Ah, Israel's better at being godless Egypt than Egypt is. We're talking about multiple exoduses. Okay, so this morning is going to be fitting that theme of an exodus. Okay. Christ, this new and better Moses, is leading his people out, and we could say through the Jordan into the promised land. All right, so keep those. You can turn that. um, Actually, I did make another slide so you can visualize that. Hit that next slide just so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Yes, Exodus number one from Egypt. Next, Exodus number two from the exiles north and south, Assyria and Babylon. Exodus number three from Israel, now renamed Egypt because they're so godless. And then next, Exodus number, or Exodus number four, go ahead and hit the bottom one, that God is in the practice of drawing his people out of slavery, exodi, and that Exodus number four is where God is drawing people from all corners of the earth, from every tribe, from every tongue, and every age. And I don't mean age group. I mean age as in like the 21st century, where you're being drawn out of this world to follow this new and better Moses. Okay, this is beautiful when you see these exodus begin to start to line up and you see God about the work of drawing his people out of slavery. Okay, all right, you can kill that slide, all right? Hopefully you'll see some of these things come into focus as we spend this time together in Matthew chapter 3. So turn to Matthew chapter 3. This Sunday and next Sunday is really a wonderful picture of how the old meets up and intersects with the new. How, as Isaiah is talking about, this old thing that has been done is going to intersect with this new thing that Isaiah alluded to. You're going to see both of those in stark picture this Sunday and next. This Sunday is going to focus more on the old, and next Sunday is going to be sort of the, uh, the, 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 the awesome picture of the new 
coming in and intersecting with the old, okay? But we're going to allude to it today, but I'm not going to rob anybody's uh, thunder next Sunday, okay? So Matthew chapter 3, we're going to look at the first 12 verses. I'll give you sort of a plan as you're listening. Uh, we're just going to consider the man, John the Baptist. I told you it's about Jesus, and you'll see why. It's, this sermon isn't about John the Baptist, okay? But we are going to consider the man, John the Baptist. We're going to consider the context of where he's speaking, and we're going to consider his message. And then we're going to end with what's the point, okay? All right? Tracking. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. In those days, okay, we're fast-forwarding from the previous scene about 30 years, Okay, we're fast-forwarding from the nativity about 30 years. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. By this point, John the Baptist is 30 years or so. Jesus is about 30 years or so, approximate. Okay? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken, by the prophet, spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, so let's get to know this guy, this man, this rough fella, John the Baptist. Okay, This guy, he's, he's a familiar uh, character, if, if you've paid attention to what he's wearing and how he's moving, if you know the story of John the Baptist, you're probably like, this guy sounds, seems a little bit familiar. Well, first of all, he's a relative of Jesus. Okay? He's the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. He is the baby that leapt in the womb when pregnant Mary went to visit her relative, Elizabeth. Okay? Even from the womb, he's celebrating this promised Messiah. Okay, he's a familiar character because he actually shows up in, or a picture of him shows up in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to this passage, it's brief. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Okay, some people thought that this was Elijah reincarnate because he's wearing the same clothing and he's moving just the same way that the prophet Elijah moves. So if he sounds familiar and seems familiar, he kind of is. He's not Elijah reincarnate, but he has a lot in common with Elijah. Okay, he's spoken about in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. That's where this reference came from that Matthew used. was in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I'd like for you to turn there just for a moment. I'm not going to keep you there for long. For long. Uh, home base for us is Matthew chapter 3, and I don't have a ton of other places for you to turn this morning. But Isaiah chapter 40 really would be a nice place for you to go. 
I'll give you a moment as you're turning there. And I just kind of plant this encouragement. Isaiah chapters 40 through 42 are like the backdrop behind Matthew chapter 3. I sent out an email yesterday saying, man, if you really want some premium preparation for Sunday, read these chapters. It's almost as if Matthew, when he was writing, you can just envision this guy sitting down with a quill and pen. He's writing out the gospel of Matthew that he had Isaiah chapters 40 through 42 right next to him when he got to chapter 3. Because the players beautifully act out all the things that you see in these chapters. Chapters 40 and 41 is the picture of this, this one crying in the wilderness. Okay, this herald, this messenger that we're getting to meet today, John the Baptist. And then chapter 2 is a beautiful picture of the one that shows up at the Jordan in the second half of chapter 3 in Matthew. The suffering servant. All right, it's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. I'm not going to read all of it, with some of the, some, but just a little excerpt. Some of the cool things you see in this chapter, chapters 40 and 41... You see a, a voice crying in the wilderness, the guy that we're considering today. You see this message that all flesh is grass. Okay, don't put your faith in, in flesh because it's going to disappoint. It's temporary. It's faulty. It's frail. It's feeble. Okay, it's a good reason why we should repent. Hint, hint. Okay, it's a, it, you see a picture of a, a star naming going down in this chapter, which ironically you see the star of Bethlehem over there in Matthew. Uh, you see the ends of the earth drawing men to see this child. This picture of the magi coming in is also in this chapter, or in these chapters. You see winnowing and threshing showing up in this chapter. It's just wildly familiar. You see the offspring of Abraham mentioned. And you know if you're paying attention from our passage this morning, I, I can make stones the offspring of Abraham. Okay, you see pools of water in the wilderness, which you're going to see this morning, and hopefully you've paid attention already. And then in chapter chapter 42, you're going to see that promised servant as he walks into and steps into the Jordan. There are some beautiful images in this chapter that are common to Matthew chapter 3. But I'm just going to read the first 10 verses because they're just really, really, they resonate with where we're going this morning. And Matthew gave us the point and gave us the opportunity to explore a little bit because he's the one that referenced Isaiah chapter 40. Okay, beginning in chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Let me give you a little bit of context. He's writing to people who are going to be in the exile. Remember the ABCs? Remember that second place where Israel goes to the north to Assyria? Okay, Judah goes to the south to Babylon. Isaiah is writing to those guys who are going to be in exile. They're going to be ripped from their homes. They're going to be living in a foreign land. They're going to be serving in foreign courts. Many of them are going to be made eunuchs in the king's court. And he's writing these words of encouragement to them. You know, prophets often foretell, well, he is for comforting. It's beautiful. He's writing forward. Let's see what he has to say. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Okay, that'd be good news to hear if you're in a foreign land. If you're in slavery, right? Good news to hear. Your iniquity is pardoned. That she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Now, let me introduce you to a thought, a word. It's, called the, it's a Latin phrase called census plenier. Okay, when Isaiah was writing these words in chapter 40 of Isaiah, he didn't know who he was talking about. He may have had some sense of what this person was going to be like, this herald in the wilderness. But it's not until Matthew chapter 3 where Matthew says, this is who Isaiah was writing about. In the fullest sense, in the plenteous sense, in the plentiful sense, in the fullest sense of what Isaiah is saying, John the Baptist is fulfilling. Okay, this is the guy that Isaiah is writing about, and he doesn't even know it. But we have the chance to look back and see this is the guy wearing camel skins and eating locusts and honey. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? You can hear John the Baptist saying, what's your message for me, God? What are you wanting me to tell the people? Tell them, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't be aware of this, but this is moments after Isaiah has written about the story about King Hezekiah. Okay, the ink might still be wet. He may not have even dipped it back into the bowl yet, or whatever you call it, the ink thing, <laughs> to, to re-wet the quill. He's just written about King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was maybe one of, probably one of the best kings of Judah. King Hezekiah got sick. And he asked God, God, help me, help me get well here, prolong my years. And God said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And there were other circumstances surrounding it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to extend your life, but your sons and your grandsons are going to end up eunuchs in the king of Babylon's court. Okay, as any father or grandfather, you would think you'd go, oh, that's terrible news. Shorten my life then. At all costs, whatever cost where my sons and my grandsons don't need to end up eunuchs in the king's court. And here's what he actually said after this word came to him. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Man, at least it's going to be good for me. Yeah, my sons and my grandsons are going to end up eunuchs in the king's court, but I'll be fine. Man, think about this for a moment. Where people, they're in the exile, they're in Assyria or they're in Babylon, and they're reading these words. They know that story, the best king of Israel, and how, or the best king of, of Judah, and how he proved to be faulty and selfish at heart. And they're reminded that all people are grass. All flesh is grass. You're like, man, no duh. What a disappointment Hezekiah turned out to be. What a disappointment my father turned out to be. My grandfather turned, to be, turned out to be for those who end up in the king's court serving in Assyria or Babylon. So the voice says, cry. And I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. That's going to be your message, John the Baptist. All flesh is grass. 
Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. If anybody could summarize the ministry of John the Baptist, that's how I would summarize it. If I could summarize it, it would be that this guy spent his life, which was brief, like a big arrow pointing to Christ, saying, behold your God. He said two things. All flesh is grass. What a disappointment we are. And he said, behold your God. There he is, stepping into the Jordan right now. Okay, that's the summary of his message. We'll speak more about that in a moment. But he's the man spoken of in Isaiah. In the, in the fullest sense, he's the fulfillment of what Isaiah wrote about. Now, he has a diet. It's a light diet. He must have been lean and mean. He eats a diet of locusts and honey. Now, apparently, part of the world still eats locusts. We're talking about grasshoppers. I don't think I've ever eaten a grasshopper. I know some people do. You know, you cover them in barbecue or some ranch flavoring or something like that. You can eat anything. You can eat cardboard. But, I mean, think about these environments where people actually are eating like it. They grab a big grasshopper and they eat that joker. This is the kind of meal that this guy's eating. Now, in our Bibles, locusts are a picture of judgment. You know, the plagues. When you begin to think of locusts, hopefully if you've read your Bible, you begin to think, ah, you don't want the locusts to show up because they're the picture of judgment. So in some ways, John the Baptist is eating judgment. But he's also eating honey. Honey is a picture of the blessings of the promised land. In some ways, he's eating the blessings or just tasting the blessings of the land to come. And he's wearing garments of camel skin. If you know your Bibles, too, you know that camels had cloven hooves. They were not clean animals. This guy, this promised guy, is wearing unclean garments. He's eating judgment. He's tasting little tastes of the blessing, and he's wearing unclean garments. He didn't wear Dio, either. I found this out. Apparently, scholars agree on this. He wore no Dio, and he smelled like a monkey's Backside, this guy was, he's not the kind of guy you want to invite to a party, all right? He's going to be problematic because he's going to, he's not going to dress the party. He's going to smell really bad. Okay, his task, to prepare the way of the Lord, to make his paths straight. Whenever a king or a queen or royal court or something like that were traveling into a foreign land or even traveling within their own land, Part of the job of the citizens in that foreign land or in their own land were to work on the roads. You drive through a state and you're like, man, these guys don't put any money into their roads. They need to spend some money on their roads. What a sloppy state. Okay, people didn't want to have that impression about their land, so they worked on the roads. I mean, they were talking like literally. They got out there and not, not with you know, the equipment that we have, obviously, but got out there with shovels or some version of that, hose. And made the paths level and straight so that the royal court could travel in style and travel comfortably. It's a great picture of what um, John the Baptist is doing. But you know, John the Baptist doesn't have a backhoe. He doesn't have a skid steer. He doesn't even have a shovel. So if you think about this, if John the Baptist is going to be making straight the way of the Lord, making level his paths, how is he going to be doing that? It has to be by his life, but most importantly, by his message. And you might just think for a moment, how in the world would a message of repentance make the way straight and grease the skids and make the travel easy and comfortable and quick for the Lord? 
how might that fulfill his task, preaching repentance? Okay, now the, uh, the, the, the setting. We talked about the man for a moment. I want to just consider the setting. He's in the wilderness, okay, the wilderness, and he's by the Jordan and in the Jordan. Okay, the wilderness that he's speaking of here is uh, the area south of Jerusalem. It's the desert of Judea. It is virtually uninhabitable. There were people that lived there. They were called the Essenes. Some people believe that John the Baptist was an Essene. Most scholars agree that he probably wasn't. But he's just out there by himself, preaching and living. Okay, it's the desert area of Judea. And then sure enough, right there in the desert or right next to the desert, or right at the edge of the desert, is this pools of water, this Jordan, the very same Jordan that the nation of Israel crossed through, minus Moses, whenever they crossed into the promised land. That's the setting, and it's important that you pay attention to the setting. Third, the message of Matthew. We hinted at this a little bit when we were reading this Isaiah passage, but the message of Matthew, first of all, was to repent. It's the first word that he spoke, repent, in this recorded message anyway. And that went to everyone, the crowds, it went to the Sadducees and Pharisees, and everyone from Judea and from Jerusalem that showed up to hear John's message, the first word is repent. Ironically, it's the first word that we have recorded in the book of Matthew of Jesus preaching as well. In chapter 4, verse 17 is the word repent. And John says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This word repent that means turn around was a very common word in Greek times that people might use like for something as simple as changing your mind by what you're going to eat at a restaurant. Oh, I repent of getting red beans and rice. I think I'll get gumbo instead. Okay? That may be Louisiana decision, but that's, that's, that's a great example. I repent of going to this movie, and I think I'm going to go to this one instead. The notion of repentance that involved an entire uh, change of life course and life direction was a new thought. And it was a new message. And it was a profound message. Repent from your way of living. Jerusalem, Judea, Sadducees, Pharisees. Prevent, uh, repent from your whole course of life and turn about to a completely new course. This word repent is used 56 times in the New Testament. Our version of it. It's only used 13 times in the Old. You almost get the sense that we're at a very pregnant point in the New Testament context where people need to repent of their movement. Okay, we'll deal with how, repent from what in a moment. That's the first part of his message is repent. The second part of his message was directed specifically in the book of Matthew to the Sadducees and Pharisees. Okay, in Luke it was to the crowds. But Matthew's making a point here, it seems, where he's speaking surgically and specifically and especially maybe to the Sadducees and Pharisees. They come walking up and he says, who, who warned you about this whole thing, you brood of vipers? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And every tree that does not bear fruit gets cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, what he's talking about there is you need to live and move righteously. We can just take a brief look at the book of Luke and kind of get a sense of this bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. We don't have to be a Sadducee or Pharisee. We can join the crowds and consider what are you talking about here? Here's some of the fruit that he's speaking about from Luke chapter 3. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he's to, have to, to do the same with his food is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also come to be baptized and said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. 
Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. All right, so here's some of the fruit that's bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. These are the types of things that the Sadducees and Pharisees are called to, to share things that they have, to not extort, to avoid corruption. Those are just some glimpses of some of the fruit of repentance. And we could just summarize that as work at righteous living. Okay, bearing the fruit of, of, of repentance would mean working at righteous living. That's the second part of John's message. Here's the third part. Do not presume. In verse 9, he says, don't presume on your relationship to Abraham. Don't presume that God can't take a stone and turn it into the son of Abraham. Okay? It's interesting here. I was thinking about this picture of proselyte baptism. Uh, Baptism was very common leading up to this point. It was common when someone actually joined the Jewish faith. Like say it's a Canaanite or Hittite or Jebusite, a Gentile of some sort wanted to join the Jewish nation, the Jewish identity. They were often baptized into that. But the, the notion of baptizing Jews would be really, really strange. It would almost be an affront. And the, the, the fact that there are Sadducees and Pharisees coming to be baptized is really a shocker. And really proof that John the Baptist was, God was really using him to wake up the people. Okay? But their, their identity with Abraham would have said, I don't need to be baptized. I'm already a son of Abraham. Okay? The fourth part of his message is one is coming. In verse 11 and 12, he identifies this one that's coming as one who's going to come not baptizing with water like John does, but baptizing with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And also one who's going to bring judgment. The picture of the threshing floor and the winnowing. One is coming. Coming. And in essence, the big picture of his message is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This thing that Isaiah wrote about 700 years ago, this thing that Hosea talked about 600-something years ago, this thing that, that, that has been prophesied by the prophets for the ages is now at hand and has shown up. This new thing that Isaiah wrote about is now here. <clears throat> okay. So I needed to have a sense of what uh, they're being called to repent from. Okay, those are the parts of his, his sermon or the parts of his message. Okay, we talked about the man. We talked about the setting. They're in the wilderness by the Jordan. We talked about the message. Repent. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't presume on your relationship to Abraham. And lastly, one is coming uh, who, who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire and bringing judgment. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But I wanted to have a sense of what are these people collectively being called to repent from. Because if I'm to connect this message personally, and if I'm to guide y'all in connecting this message, I want to understand what does repentance mean? What is God calling his people out of? So here are the things that God is calling them from. Falling short in God's ideal. That is the definition of sin. Whether it's intentional or not. If you fall short of what God, a holy God, is expecting of people, mankind, Israel, mankind in general, then you have sinned and you are due repentance. Okay, You should turn about from that sin. Falling short in God's ideal, we could say falling short of the old covenant law or the Moses uh, law at Sinai. 
Secondly, trusting in their own relationship to Abraham. They're to repent of that, trusting in their lineage. And third, they're to repent of trusting in their efforts to save them. The parable in Luke 18 of the tax collector and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee that goes through his great list of all the awesome things that he's doing, left unforgiven. They're to repent of trusting in their works. Faithful or faithless works, neither will save you, people. Neither will save you. And they're to repent from, in sort of a corporate sense, there's like a corporate confession here of the sin of the people. I've kind of hesitated to share this passage because, I, man, I know how a sermon like this can hit folks. And I know how you're kind of like trying to figure out how to piece it together. But I would like to share this passage with you from Daniel chapter 9 because it's striking. This guy that was so courageous. This guy who actually we're talking about in the storyline would be do the second exile. Or excuse me, the second exodus. A guy who'd gone into exile into Babylon. A guy who was likely serving as a eunuch in the king's court. Was faithful praying to his God. I mean, just visualize being that guy. I can't imagine that I wouldn't be bitter. Man, Hezekiah was cool with this, and here I find myself serving in the king's court. But here's his prayer in, in Daniel chapter 9. He says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants and the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Do you know Daniel's story? Man, it's so hard for us not to think individualistically because we're a bunch of Westerners. We've been taught and conditioned to think as individuals. This guy's praying as part of the people of God. He's not asking for forgiveness and repenting of individual sin. He's asking forgiveness for corporate sin. God, we, the nation of Israel, has wronged you. We have wronged you. We have acted wickedly. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, that servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Oh, that I would begin to think like this man corporately. And now, O oh Lord God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt, man, ABCs, with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Man, I'm thinking these guys need to repent of their individual sin, of their individual falling short, as they're hearing John the Baptist's message, and they're coming from Judea and Jerusalem, and they're coming out there. The Sadducees and Pharisees, they need to repent of their individual movement. They need to trust of their, uh, 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 repent of trusting in their relationship to Abraham. They need to repent of trusting in their efforts to save themselves but oh, that they would all show up collectively saying, we have sinned against you, God. Man, you set us up for success. And we were headstrong. We were headstrong from the moment we crossed the Red Sea, complaining about being hungry. We were headstrong from the moment that Moses walked up Sinai and we said, hey, Aaron, can you make something for us to worship? Because we've already grown tired of the one who led us across the Red Sea on dry ground. 
Man, oh, that they would show up at the, the Jordan there collectively and say, we have wronged you. Where is the Messiah? Where's this new thing? Because we've got 1,500 years of disappointment from the Exodus onward. Man, oh, that they would show up collectively, heartbroken. Man, I was thinking, too, what Greenville might call, be called to repent of. Man, I don't want to, it's not a direct transfer because we're not Israel, but we're people. So I thought, what, what might we be called to repent of? And I thought, well, we could be called to repent of trusting in our lineage. Because there's some folks among us that might trust that I, I come from really good stock, man. I, my family's really religious. My dad and mom, they're so faithful. Mm. And I just want to tell you this, I don't care if you come from royalty. I don't care if you come from a ham sandwich. God has no grandchildren. I want you to hear that from me right now. I don't care how faithful your parents are. God has no grandchildren. There's only sons and daughters of the high king of heaven. You cannot rest in your parents being faithful. Kids, hear that from me too. Man, something that came in this new thing and this new person and this new work was this new covenant where all of you have access from the least to the greatest, from the six-year-old to the 60-year-old of heaven. So repent of trusting in your good family and step into the Jordan with John, if that's what you're thinking. Maybe it's this. Maybe we're trusting in our own works. Maybe we're sort of sort of personalize this thing and figure out how this fits with our Greenville context. Well, we hold down a good job. Yeah, we vote. Man, I vote. I got a little sticker. We're good citizens, good neighbors. We return the neighbor's trash can from the street on Tuesdays and Fridays, right? You know you're heaven bound if you do that, right? <laughs> we bag up canned food when the Boy Scouts are collecting. We give to some charities, the good ones, the ones that have a good return, that don't pay their CEOs too much. We give regularly at church, volunteer to help out when our schedules allow, and maybe even beyond that, we help out sacrificially. We return the grocery cart to the collection point. Please, we even might leave a quarter in the grocery cart at Aldi, <laughs> right? Man, we don't linger in the left lane on the highway. <laughs> Am I right? We provide for our families, we pay our bills on time. Maybe here's the message for us is repent of those good works. Repent of trusting in those good works. Keep doing them. Keep doing works that are in keeping with repentance, fruit that's in keeping with repentance. But don't you dare trust in those works. Those works won't save you. On your best day, you can't meet the requirements of the law. If you sin in any part of it, you've sinned in all of it. And sin is that contaminating, and holiness is that holy. God is that distinct from who we are, even on your best day. So if that's where you are, repent of trusting in your good days and step into the Jordan with John. Man, here's maybe the highest call. Maybe you're like, I kind of really, really think that way. I don't trust in my works. I'm not trusting in my lineage at all. How about this? Let me invite Greenville. Let me invite Crosspoint Fellowship to this idea of a corporate confession of sin on the part of mankind against our creator. Man, maybe we could think like and pray like Daniel 
we being Jews, Gentiles, Texans, Oklahomans, Louisianans, have failed our Creator collectively. We need something and someone new. Man, we collectively could make a beeline, dive into the Jordan, and join John. Maybe you can carry some of those thoughts into this connection as John is calling them to repent. He's calling them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's calling them to live righteously, not trusting in their works. He's calling them to not presume on their relationship to Abraham. He's calling them to repent collectively for rebellion against their God. We can join John. We can connect maybe our thoughts on that. And then I want to share a passage with you that I hope, hope really brings this sermon into focus for us this morning. Ironically, I've been preparing to preach in Matthew 3. But here's the passage that's been on my heart. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that, they're, that bear witness about me. This is Jesus speaking these words. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. As I was preparing to preach this sermon, as I was studying Matthew chapter 3, I was thinking about all the possibilities for a sermon. I could preach a sermon on not being overly sensitive, seeker sensitive, I could say. Not overly focused on lost people. Okay, John's a great example of that, man. This guy's preaching in the wilderness. He's not wearing skinny jeans. There's nothing cool about him. He doesn't wear Dio. This guy is like, man... Don't invite him to the fall festival by any stretch. Don't invite him to the Easter egg hunt where we have an outreach event because he makes everybody mad. <laughs> That'd have been a great sermon. We could have a sermon on bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, on doing good works that are righteous works but not trusting in them. Be a good sermon, right? I mean, that'd be a sermon we could walk away from and go, "Yeah, man, I got some tangibles here. I don't want to trust in putting that." leaving that quarter in the, the card at Aldi. Okay, I don't want to trust in not lingering in the left lane. That'd be a great sermon. We could have a sermon on being bold, right? Because John the Baptist is a bold man, <laughs> right? He's preaching boldly. He, he's shooting straight with the Sadducees and Pharisees. Hmm. That'd be a good sermon. We could have a sermon on judgment. You you got the winnowing, you got the threshing floor, which later became the temple floor. I mean, I'm talking geographically. The threshing floor is the same temple that he cleared. He did exactly what what was promised. We could have a great sermon on that. But here's the point. We could could have a sermon about John the Baptist because it kind of looked like that's what this was going to be about. But here's the reality. This sermon isn't about John the Baptist. We could search the scriptures and in them believe that they have eternal life and we could miss that those scriptures are pointing us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's been my hope and prayer this week is that we could land on this sermon and this passage looking for Jesus. What does it tell us about Jesus? In Matthew chapter 3, if you pan out and you get what Matthew is getting at, I think Matthew would be brokenhearted at the notion of us preaching any of those sermons, standalone sermons. Because that's not the point he's making. 
Man, those would be home run sermons, but that's not Matthew's sermon. Matthew is showing us in chapter 3 where this old thing is meeting this new thing. He's showing us here in chapter 3 that God is doing a new thing, the very same new thing that he promised in Isaiah chapter 43, that it is truly at hand. Man, here's what I want you to see. You've done the work this morning, and here's where I want you to land John is a metaphor of the old. He's a metaphor of the old covenant. He's a metaphor of old Israel. He's a metaphor of the old system. He represents, too, a faithful remnant waiting on the new and promised something and someone. And like Israel wandered in the wilderness, that's where he's planted, right there in the wilderness. And he's wandering in the wilderness too, and he's preaching. He's wandering somewhere between Egypt and the promised land. He's eating judgment, the locusts. He's tasting the promises and the honey. He's wearing unclean garments. Man, John is preaching in the wilderness a a baptism of repentance. In so many ways, he's already in the Jordan, and he's inviting others into the Jordan to say, God, we have sinned against you. We need a new thing. Man, I'm envisioning it. Locust leg stuck in his tooth. Honey on his lips. Camel skin soaking wet. Jordan water on him. There's John. There's the people of Jerusalem. There's Judea. There's some Sadducees and Pharisees in there too. There's some tax collectors we know from Luke. There's some, some soldiers even. I wonder if they're Gentile soldiers too. In there in the Jordan with him. And it's like a liquid confession of bankruptcy. I don't have it. On my best day and our best day as a people, we don't have what you only can give us. This new thing, this new person. They're like treading water. Ah, Come get in this thing. Give us, come here and help us, please. And in perfect form. With no great fanfare at all. This old thing meets something new finally. In Matthew 3.13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Man, God met John. God met the people in their repentance. In their need, in their liquid confession, we don't have what we need. God literally met them in the waters of the Jordan. (laughs) This new thing, this new person that was promised, met them there. I wonder what he said to them. We have the recorded words. But I wonder if there was something along the lines of trust in me. I'll lead you to the other side, to the promised land. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for a sermon that's just about Jesus. God, I'm thankful too for this picture, this beautiful picture of this anxious, crying out, old, pining for this new thing 
that you promised through Isaiah. Waiting for this new person that stepped into the Jordan and met them that day. God, I pray that this morning, that maybe in these few minutes that we've spent together, that someone in here is feeling like the weight of repentance, of living according to sin and self, of following their own plan of life, of maybe trusting in their works, maybe trusting in their lineage, maybe trusting in themselves, that this weight of repentance will send them and turn them Christward this morning. That this new thing that's no longer new for us that will just overwhelm us that is so glorious and so wonderful in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We enjoy him this morning. We love Jesus. We need Jesus. We are thankful for Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Here's my appeal to you this morning. We're going to distribute the elements of the supper. Now, here's my appeal to you, whether you're for the first time or the thousandth time. Trust Jesus with John. Trust Jesus with the crowds of Judea and Jerusalem. Trust him today. If this is the first time, trust him. Believe what he said. Believe he is who he said he was and is. He is trustworthy. This meal is for those who are trusting in him. Together we are remembering the work that he accomplished for us dealing with our sin on the cross through his broken body. I want to enjoy too as we take this supper this morning that as we eat, that unlike Moses who perished and couldn't lead them over the Jordan into the promised land, our Savior lives. We're not remembering somebody dead and gone. We're remembering a terrible price paid, but we're enjoying a Savior who reigns and rules and is seated at the Father's right hand right now. Let's distribute the elements and enjoy him together.